0: Hi, I'm Margherita Capacci and I'm working with Stephanie and Janet as their editorial intern. So this summer collection has my four top picks from last year, which helped me to understand better some of the cases going on this year. This is the fourth and last episode of this summer collection. So to me, this is a general reminder that especially when there's a wide-scale mobilization in international justice around the case, like the one in Ukraine, and there is a felt need to seek justice quickly, it is important to still have someone who monitors trials independently and keep us updated. I hope you'll enjoy it. The courts knew we were watching and different audiences, including affected communities, knew that our reports were neutral. They weren't filtered through the outreach arm or branch of the court. Um, And sometimes as monitors, we raise some uncomfortable and unwelcome topics Justice plays
1: an important role.
2: I consider this tribunal a false tribunal
3: and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. Alright. Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And as always, I have Janet Anderson with me too. Hi, Janet. Hi. Well... Today, we're going to look at something that's kind of interesting,
2: but maybe a bit sad, maybe a bit intriguing for true international justice nerds. Open Society Foundations, their justice initiative, has stopped
3: its long-running monitoring of a variety of trials this is really going to make my job as a journalist covering international justice quite hard because, you know, when you're following all these different types of trials and there's a lot going on at the same time, I just don't have the time or the means to go to all of them daily. So I use the Open Society Foundation monitoring initiative very extensively. And I'm I'm really, really upset that it's going to end, actually. Well, I think we should mention the
2: um, precise uh, title. It's ijmonitor.org. And they're still keeping up all of their reports. What it did was make us think about what the use is of monitoring trials I mean who impact it's really for who's doing the monitoring because um, there are many organizations doing this not only open society and really what kind of uses people can put it to so we thought that would be a good opportunity to talk to Tegan Reisman. Tegan hi you're now the content officer
1: with OSGI. Hi good afternoon happy Friday Uh, thank you for having me
2: And uh, you were also the manager of the International Justice Monitor previously. So thank you very much for coming on to chat to us about it.
3: We also have Jennifer Easterday. She is the executive director now of Just Peace Labs. Hi, Jennifer.
0: Hi, how are you?
3: And she was there uh, and started monitoring with the trial of Liberian leader Charles Taylor, which was for the special court for Sierra Leone, but happening in The Hague. That I also managed to catch some of the beginning of. But let's start with Tegan. Why is Justice Monitor stopping? It started in 2007. Why now end it? Well, there's really
1: two parts to that answer. The first is that even though Open Society Justice Initiative sits within a very large, well-funded foundation, we still have to justify our budget. We operate somewhat as a NGO and that budget is finite, of course. And with new emerging situations um and conflicts in the world, it, we, you know, made the decision that it was time to wind down the monitoring work. Uh, we were committed to seeing through a couple trials that were ongoing, um, such as the judgment in the Anguin case and through the appeals in the Nataganda case. Um, and part of the legacy of that work and that exit was also the development of the trial monitoring guide. And the second reason was that we saw an encouraging trend in the field, in that there were other um NGOs and civil society organizations picking up more uh, trial monitoring work of these grave crimes trials. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that at the ICC level, but certainly in different contexts in Europe, in universal jurisdiction cases, Civis Maxima has been doing some great work, and the um, Syria Justice and Accountability Center has also been covering the RASLIN trial in Germany, which is the first grave crimes trials for anything in, that has happened in Syria we felt it was a, a good time to start winding down our own work and let others take the mantle.
3: What will you miss most about this trial monitoring, Tegan?
1: So first is I think we built a great team of journalists and lawyers, academics, who had monitored trials over, you know, more than a decade. And and so I think working with such smart and dedicated hardworking people that, you know, when you're covering these trials over years and you're having contact with these individuals on a daily basis, they really become part of your life. So I think for me personally, that interaction that I got from from the team will definitely, you know, I'll miss that a lot. The other part I think that I I think was unique about the work, especially in the context of some of the work that we do in the Justice Initiative and other NGOs. You know, a lot of our work is long-term advocacy-oriented projects or litigation that often take several months or years to see any results from or for the public to be informed about. Whereas this project, you know, we were putting out new information um, that didn't exist otherwise into the world every day that had a real impact on, you know, that reached affected communities that reached journalists that could then you know communicate that back out and so it was great to have, you know kind of leave every day knowing that we put something new out into the world um that had some meaning it was kind of nice to have that feeling of accomplishment on a regular basis
2: let me bring you in here uh jennifer because uh You were involved right at the start. As we mentioned, it was the trial of Charles Taylor at the Special Court of Sierra Leone, but happening in The Hague and even happening at the premises of the ICC, how to confuse people. And I look back to see how this was described at the time. And it was described as kind of independent outreach for West African audiences. So you're really saying okay courts might do their own kind of outreach but we need to talk to audiences directly is that what it was about well, a little bit
0: yeah so the special court for sierra leone monitoring program which was run then by the uc berkeley war crime study center was really envisioned as as this opportunity to monitor the trial in situ so our original monitors were in sierra leone they were in Freetown monitoring the court from the beginning. And yes, the idea was to help bridge the distance between the hybridity of the Sierra Leone trial to help bring some independent neutral reports about the court um, and, and have a presence there in Freetown because a lot of the international groups were not able to maintain a steady presence in Freetown. And then when the trial of Charles Taylor moved to The Hague, it was seen as important to be able to follow that trial along to then bridge back to those groups in Freetown who were no longer able to monitor the trial uh, that was happening in The Hague and that was happening so far away from a court that was meant to be located close to the affected population.
2: Yeah, it really cuts to the heart, doesn't it, of uh, some of the uh, issues that that we cover regularly on international justice that it feels so far away from people. So monitoring is this way of bridging.
0: I think in some ways, I think monitoring can be a way of bridging. I think monitoring can also be a way, this is always my shtick if you've heard me talk about trial monitoring before, it really depends on the audience and the intended objective of the monitoring project. But monitoring can serve to monitor the institution. We did a little bit of that with the special court for Sierra Leone because it was a relatively new model. We also did more institutional level monitoring there, looking at the efficiency of trials, um, whether fair fair trial rights were being respected. Then at the ICC level, you have a little bit, uh, you have different groups doing some of that monitoring. You have the International Bar Association who did really the fair trial rights oriented monitoring. You have a whole advocacy institution or field now, it seems, that follows the court, the ICC court itself. So it's not always a bridging exercise. Sometimes it serves different purposes. You know, David Cohen at the War Crime Study Center, he was a historian, I believe, um, by training. And so he, there was also this interest in recording the trials for posterity, just to keep a record so that we can understand how these trials and how these institutions operated. I wanted to
3: say that, that one of the things that uh, uh, struck me is that I'm always very into whatever precedent the former Yugoslav uh, tribunal said, but they had set up a whole special kind of news agency called CENSA, which would basically monitor the trials and have TV programs and documentaries about how these trials unfolded to be sent back to the local population because of how these trials uh, were removed, and that was always an important function. And at the ICC, they're trying to do that a bit themselves, but there's really... Not that kind of uh, independent uh, organization doing that, and I think that's a real a real problem with the ICC is that it's it's hard to bring these trials to, to local people and, and, and in in a way trial monitoring provides a bit of that with with some of the some of the work that you did What sticks uh, in your mind really as a piece of writing or or impact that you had in, in that period Jennifer
0: it's really hard to pick one I think it's it's really you, you mentioned it at the beginning of this question. For me, I'll focus on the impact rather than one specific piece of writing, but I think the largest impact that we had, both at the War Crime Study Center monitoring the, the Charles Taylor trial and the ICC monitoring work, was the courts knew we were watching, and different audiences, including affected communities, knew that our reports were neutral, They weren't filtered through the outreach arm or branch of the court. Um, And sometimes as monitors, we raise some uncomfortable and unwelcome topics. Um, We were equally critical of the prosecution strategies and and different judgments that the, the Judges in the courts would come down with as much as we would question some of the movements and some of the issues of um, witness protection or the registry. So we really were watching um, and reporting on all the different branches and all the different arms involved in these trials, and frankly, got some pushback along the way. But to me, that means that they knew we were watching, they knew it was neutral, and people could then trust more the output um of what was appearing on IG monitor
2: taken we've heard from Jennifer there talking about uh how important monitoring is to you know this watchdog uh way of working on the courts and the tribunals themselves what about the importance for communities who have actually been affected by the crimes to start with I mean, i i read a piece you wrote where you described it as quote crucial
1: in some way, is it really crucial? Um, yes, it's it's extremely um, important because I think, particularly when we're talking about international crimes trials, um, it's not just what happens in the in the courtroom that's you know important. Like looking at the process holistically and how victims are impacted by the trial, if they are impacted at all. What will affect you know the the success of the court as an institution. If the victims know about what's going on, if it, they see it as justice being done um, to to their communities or for their communities, it's you know the the court also. I mean, I think needs the the support and of um, you know buy in of affected communities who have lived through these crimes, and I think hearing voices in particular this is one thing that we try to do on IJ Monitor um is you know partner with some local organizations whether they're NGOs or or media to to also bring up voices from those communities onto the website to provide additional context to the trial um in the way that just reading about courtroom events doesn't necessarily provide
3: you've talked also about the kind of uh the need that tribunals have for an outreach strategy. I think the quote is the absence of an outreach strategy undermines the legitimacy and the legacy of the tribunals. Uh, Can you explain a bit how that works and and do you have an idea of what is like successful outreach and and what is unsuccessful outreach of the courts that we're kind of have around us now?
1: I mean, I think one of the criticism of the ICC and its outreach is that it often comes too late. I mean a lot of this has been discussed in the um independent expert review, the final report. It's been mentioned just how it often comes too late. During preliminary examinations there's no communication strategy at all, certainly not court-wide, and it's really um allows for misinformation to spread if you don't have a good outreach and communication strategy from the very beginning because it uses especially when you're you're dealing with authoritarian countries or you know you're going out through these high level political actors you know they have the the space then to spin the story and to spread misinformation to then have you know the communities you know not trust the court or not understand how it works or just be fed lies so it's really um a lot of Missed opportunities, I think, and it's, you know, those are highlighted also in in the independent expert report. I think the special court of Sierra Leone has been heralded as, you know, one of the best examples of outreach strategies. I mean, it was different because it was also embedded in Freetown. So they they were just much closer to the community. But their outreach events involved all parties, um, defense and prosecution, victims representatives, to have Community dialogues and exchanges. There was radio programming um, about the trials, and it was really it was seen as largely successful in terms of informing the population about what's going on and why it's important to them and their lives. And I think, I mean, there's several factors that make it more complicated at the ICC because it's in so many different locations, and the court is based thousands of miles away.
2: Jennifer, you've got a really strong legal background yourself so I kind of wonder when you look at trying to put monitoring together how do you balance between the legal side which is absolutely fascinating for legal nerds and then actually trying to tell the story of what's going on and make it more generally acceptable to people so that, that people actually want to read it I mean, how do you balance that?
0: Not very well <laughs> um Again, my shtick, it depends on your audience and the goals for trial monitoring. For example, the War Crime Study Center trial uh, monitoring of the Taylor trial was tended to be much more legal and much more academic and focused, that mapped onto the goals of that monitoring program and our audience. Um, at that time was much more practitioner or, um, and academic oriented, whereas at IJ Monitor and the ICC trial monitoring I did it was much more geared towards a broader general audience and for for general consumption. so I had to learn as learn by doing on how to tone down some of that legalese. But it's also a little bit of an ethical issue. I always took it um, very seriously that the trial monitoring had to be completely neutral. So as we're reporting on things, it, it's these stories are very dramatic. They're very emotional. And you want to be able to tell that story in a way that does justice and honors the experience of everybody involved. But at the same time, we are monitoring a legal proceeding. So in terms of telling a story my reports were full of the witness testified according to the witness the defense lawyers claimed that just to remind people that it couldn't be taken out of context that these were testimonies and these this was evidence presented in court and they couldn't be presented factually or even if a witness was quoted you couldn't present that quote as a fact it said it had to be what the witness explained or said or or asked um, so that takes away, I think, from the storytelling aspect of it. It does make the stories a lot more dry, confusing, and but, but that was the goal, right? It had to be neutral, and because a lot of these reports were picked up and copied verbatim um, through various news sources and other organizations as one of the intents of the project, that was really important to adhere to. And then on the other side, in terms of balancing storytelling itself and, and wanting to make things more interesting for readers – I always had to think about whether I was sensationalizing any of these experiences or stories because really the witness experience and the testimony is not clickbait and and, and it shouldn't have been treated that way. And so I think sometimes they weren't necessarily compelling stories to read, such as as some of the other um, narratives that come out of the trial monitoring or trial reporting, but we were trying to adhere to those core principles.
2: Let me pick it up with uh, Tegan now, because I think you've already mentioned how important it is to have some of these local perspectives that you you got information in and sharing from different NGOs on the ground. But I was also conscious how important it was for me that you had local people doing the writing and we had some of the, you know, tremendous expertise of somebody like Alpha Sise or Tom Maliti or Wakabi. Who really knew both the communities and the trials? Uh, I mean, was
1: that important for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because I think with these larger, yeah, these international crimes trials, they sit with a much broader political, cultural, ethnic context, and really understanding that will actually make your reporting and your monitoring work better. Understanding, you know, yeah, how conflicts originated and the locations that they're talking about um, is really essential to getting the facts, you know, right and reporting accurately. Um, so that's extremely important. And also it allowed, I mean, Tom being based in Kenya and, and Alpha did, you know, Sierra leonean and he was able to do outreach in Sierra Leone and they have a connection with the community. They're seen as much more credible within the community as well, um, who, who some of the monitoring reports are intended to reach. And uh, I think it was very, very important to us to have um, voices um, on the on the site monitoring the trials um, in those communities.
3: Oh, I've just realized that I have my vaccination appointment more or less right now, so I need to get off this uh, podcast and and uh, get to the vaccination center. So I'm going to leave Janet to do the rest of this podcast, and I'm very sorry. Go, okay. go, Bye. go,
2: go. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um. Okay. Jennifer, I wanted to pick up with you now on what's going to happen next. Who's picking up the baton now? Um, I feel a little bit strange asking you about all of this because I've been involved with both you, Jennifer, and with Taken with creating a space a guide looking at how to develop a community so i feel a bit self-serving asking this question but here we go i have the sense that there are a lot of different initiatives out there now who are looking at monitoring different trials it's like everybody says yes i should should do it are you conscious jennifer that there's now a community that that's been created and people who know about how to do this
0: I think that there is definitely a community of people who know about this, who understand the importance of it. I unfortunately don't think that that always translates into the donor community. And as Tegan mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, consistent trial monitoring on the level of IJ Monitor and following the courts of the ICC is quite expensive. It is difficult to convince, or I have found it difficult to convince donors to be able to support uh, financially an ongoing monitoring program of that nature and scope, especially when you're designing a program that, for example, you know, the, the Uganda trial, um, it starts, it stops 10 years later, we're still waiting. So if a trial, when we were trying to raise funds for a monitoring program based in Uganda, um, if we would have gotten funding for that, what would have happened, right? We would ten years later, and and you're still there. So I think that there's a community of practice. I think there's a lot of people who really get it. I don't know that that means that there is a community um, of trial monitoring programs that has been built around to fill in this this big gap that will be left. Taken.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Jennifer gives a pretty accurate just description of of where things stand. I think it's exciting to see newer groups enter the field, like the this S Jack that I mentioned, Syria Justice and Accountability Center and Civitas Maxima, um, who's doing work on cases from the Liberian civil war, um, that are universal jurisdiction cases. There hasn't been a broader translation into. Work being done in other countries, unfortunately, particularly in in Africa um where some of the i c c trials are going on, which are really um it's really crucial to get information to those local communities it's hard to reach you know populations in the central african republic and, and Mali who've been impacted by the crimes that are now on trial for its people are being tried for and it's um it's a shame that yeah more you know larger organizations aren't trying to think creatively about how to reach those communities to cover the trials you know trust Africa also actually did some great work covering the Hassan Habre trial, and that was that was encouraging, so um you know perhaps you know more initiatives can come about, especially when they realize there is this, you know, gap that's been left at the ICC level with IJ Monitor.
2: I had uh, an interesting conversation recently with a Dutch-based group who are looking into monitoring Yazidi trials. And of course, I was able to offer them the guide that we've put together, which essentially says, think about, why you're doing it beforehand and think about who it's for. And that's the main thing. But I had that sense then of, yeah, there are all these trials going on. People do want to know what's actually happening in them. There is a market out there for... For the detail of what's happening in these trials. So we should definitely try to uh, to get more and more people monitoring them. Um, Jennifer, are you finding that, that people are approaching you to ask for advice at any point or to, to try to set up any other Any other monitoring programs or it's not top of their agenda?
0: No, in my experience, it hasn't been top of their agenda, although I think it definitely should be, especially as we're moving into this age of misinformation and disinformation. And there's so many different narratives and so many different people trying to control narratives about conflict and mass human rights abuses that we really need to be thinking about different and more creative ways, as you said, Janet, to be able to follow these trials and to be able to follow them consistently. Um, and not just dropping in and dropping out at moments that might be more interesting to the international community.
2: I'm now going to ask you both our general asymmetrical haircuts uh, questions. And the first one is, are there any questions that we should have asked that you would like us to ask right now? Tegan, you go first.
1: Um, I think one thing I wanted to highlight was, you know, some of the the struggles that we had with the program. Because one of the purported goals, you know, initially, especially with the Taylor trial, which um, we were largely successful on, was reaching reaching impacted communities when trials were taking place, you know, thousands of miles away in The Hague. That became increasingly difficult with the ICC cases. You know, in Eastern Congo, a website wasn't with, you know, with updates on, on the trial going on in The Hague wasn't going to cut it. And, you know, we were able to partner with a local radio station, uh, which was great, but it also meant, you know, our work was done in English primarily, and it had to be translated. And so there was a delay naturally, and before it could be, you know, incorporated into a radio program there. And even, even then, you know, we didn't have the, um, we didn't have the resources or bandwidth capacity, I guess, to um, really invest in other types of content dissemination, like SMS, which may have been more useful, and other creative platforms like that, it was really um, actually encouraging to see that the ICC was starting to do, you know, some of that work in Uganda and Northern Uganda during the ONGWIN trial. And so that's, I think, one thing to think about in terms of when you are designing a project is, you know, we we cover this too in the communication section of our guide. Um, How are you going to transmit it? And is that going to reach your intended audience?
0: Jennifer, anything that we should have asked? Yeah, I think um, it's important to just highlight the experience of trial monitoring for trial monitors and the importance of psychological support and helping, as you talked about, this community of practice and community of support. um, It's really important to understand that for people who are Following trials day in and day out, they hear all of the testimony, including all of the really traumatic testimony um, and in horrible crimes that were allegedly committed by the accused, but as small organizations, as you know, on a shoestring budget, oftentimes a lot of trial monitors are students or their um, early, early professionals um, getting their foot in the door of international justice work. And they don't have the larger uh, resources for that kind of psychological support and PTSD support that people working within the court may have. And so I think that's an important aspect to just keep in mind for anybody who's considering doing this kind of work or who has done this kind of work. And it's something that really shouldn't be, I mean, just in general and working in international justice, many different iterations of this, but it's not something that we should shy away from talking about.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, And I I was on my points to mention as well in terms of the secondary trauma. Um, Whether you're in the courtroom or you're just editing reports, it adds up. I mean, one of the hardest times for me ever during this job is right after I came back from my maternity leave, and I was reviewing and editing post on the Supper Zarco case in Guatemala, which is this horrific sexual slavery case. It resulted in one of the first known domestic convictions as for sexual slavery as an international violation of international humanitarian law. But I'm sitting there, you know, I have a six month old baby at home, and I have all these hormones and reading these reports about these, you know, brave survivors. And crying at my desk because I could, <laughs> you can't process that information. It's not normal. Like what you know, what these trials cover are, you know, unfortunately, some of the worst of humanity. And so knowing that, and I'm also really proud. Um, Jennifer and I discussed this a lot, but I'm also really proud that we included, you know, some, a section of this in our guide in the very first chapter in terms of when you're designing your program and managing your team some of the harm that could actually come to you even if you know I mean I think we all want to make ourselves martyrs in a way in this field um, because we're not the actual victims we are we're not the ones that you know faced torture or faced you know sexual slavery but it doesn't mean it doesn't accumulate and impacts us well thank you for
2: sharing that with us I have not had that experience of having to watch a trial day in, day out and having to write up really bad things uh, from it. So um, if that ever does happen to me, then I will be very careful. Thank you. Um, And our last question that we always ask is, what are you listening to? or reading or watching, and it doesn't have to be in this field, it can be something completely different, particularly um, as we talk about getting away from the uh, the atrocity field. Um, any uh, binge watching, Jennifer, on uh, Netflix?
0: Yes, talk about escapism. We just started watching Vikings, so there you have it. <laughs>
2: Plenty of blood and gore in that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Anything, anything else that you want to recommend to
0: people? Um, I just started a really great new book called Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. And I'm, I'm really just into it, but it, it's one of these. It's already got me turned upside down in terms of its perspective. Um, it, it touches a little bit more on my work in the technology sector, but um, it's, it's fascinating. And taken
1: gosh um i'm yeah i'm doing more harm to myself i just started the the fourth season of the handmaid's tale so I, if yeah it's very scary and dystopian and um yeah but it's riveting and the it's an excellent show but it's scary i've read a couple really great books Maybe this has, says something about my headspace, but more memoir oriented. I just read Untamed by Glennon Doyle, which is really great, really great read. Um, she, I mean, her perspective is, you know, she writes about how specifically women have been tamed in a way by society and culture to to play certain roles and to fit in, you know, quote unquote boxes in a way and. How to yeah trying to break that and be more honest with yourself and what you want and she um she has a really interesting background and she gives a lot of great advice on parenting too um which I appreciated um I also read Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong which touches a lot about um the Asian American experience um it's a pretty short read but it's really fascinating and also makes me realize how much I don't know about U.S. history um particularly in our relationship with the asian countries and my understanding of the korean war and yeah so i think learning about that perspective um just because of all of the the increase in anti asian violence in the united states has been really horrific over the past years um I'm trying to yeah better understand the the context and the history behind it too
2: well thank you both for such a um broad range of uh, really different things to watch listen to uh not listen to in your case but to, to read so so great um i think it's time for me to say goodbye i need to say it uh, on behalf of stephanie as well who had to rush out as she suddenly realized that her vaccine appointment was closer than it's that it appeared um, luckily You know, she lives in a small town, so she's able to get to it fairly quickly. So I'm holding my thumbs for her. hope that everything goes well for her appointment. Thank you very much, Jennifer. And thank you, Taken.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by Audionautics.com. We are available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.